because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm Alex Epstein. Today's show, we have a really, really current topic. We're going to be talking about the California blackouts and the California wildfires. And today's guest is actually the most popular guest in recent Power Hour history. It's Michael Schellenberger, author of Apocalypse Never, and uh, just a great commenter on different kinds of issues. And he's written a bunch of Forbes articles recently covering both the blackouts and the wildfires. So I thought I'd have him on, get his thoughts, share some of my thoughts. And I, I just recorded this yesterday, actually, so I know how it turns out. I think it's really fascinating, and I think you'll enjoy it a lot. Before we get started, just one note. Go to energytalkingpoints.com. I've been talking about that for the past several weeks. This is where I'm putting current commentary that's super easy to use, super easy to share uh, on all kinds of energy and environment and climate issues related to this year's election. So please continue to use that and continue to share that with people. All right. That said, let's bring on Michael Schellenberger to discuss California blackouts and California wildfires. I am joined once again by Michael Schellenberger, author of Apocalypse Now, to talk California blackouts and California wildfires. Uh, Mike, welcome back to Power Hour. Thanks for having me back, Alex. And it's Apocalypse Never. Oh, my now. God. Oh, my God. <laughs> no so, worries. No yeah. worries. Everybody thinks that. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like a, I feel like one of those presidential candidates who's just like it's like when Biden says you know oh, 150 million people die from gun violence and it's like they memorized something a year ago and then they just but they're not thinking about the meaning so yeah I was thinking too far ahead to the blackouts and wildfires and not enough about the title of the book. No so worries. Let's jump in. So you've been doing a lot of great writing about both of these. These are both super topical. So let's start off with uh, this year's blackouts. And just to catch people up, what's the rough timetable so far of the blackouts in California? Like what has happened and when? Okay, so there's two kinds of blackouts. The first kind is the kind that's imposed by, that was imposed by PG&E for Northern and Central California last fall, basically to prevent fires from occurring by their transmission and distribution electrical lines. So that occurred last fall. Now what happened was that we did, there were some outages, but they narrowly averted widespread blackouts a couple weeks ago, about a week and a half ago now, because they just didn't have enough power to power a big surge in air conditioning because of hot temperatures. And, and as, as you know, <laughs> turns out you need reliable electricity, uh, not just random electricity or unreliables. And so they came very close to a blackout. Um, it now looks as though they've, they've decided to keep natural gas plants that they were planning on retiring, continue to operate. Obviously, you know, we're, and your listeners may know, we're still pushing to save Diablo Canyon, which is set to shut down. You know, they were short like four to 5,000 megawatts. Diablo Canyon's 2,200 megawatts. <laughs> So they'd be making the problem exponentially worse in four years if they shut it down. But I think it's, I think the whole episode has been a wake up call for people that like, yeah, like there's a difference between natural gas and nuclear plants and solar and wind. There's just an obvious difference. And, you know, one of the things that happened is that they were like, well, we lost a couple of natural gas plants as though that was the fault of like natural gas. It's just because you didn't have enough backup plants running dummies. And then they lost a thousand megawatts of wind. So, you know, it was quite the shit show, I must say. I was, we listened in on the call that they did, the head of the grid, which is called CalISO. You know, and they basically, the guy just completely attacked this other agency, the Public Utilities Commission agency, for not having commissioned enough electricity. So, you know, it's a mess. I think it shows also to the extent to which these guys that are running our electricity here in California are just completely bought into the ideology, you know, this, the ideology, which is, you know, sort of, well, we're all going to run our washing machines when the sun is shining and the wind is blowing. And it's all going to kind of work out somehow, a lot of hand waving. Well, we saw the hand waving wasn't enough to keep the grid going. So I think it was a very interesting moment. I, I saw, I think I saw, I detected a bit of a change among 
the journalists who covered this. They, for the first time, started to suggest that, yeah, yeah, maybe relying on, on inherently unreliable power sources isn't going to do it. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. What do you think about what Gavin Newsom has done so far? Because he at least admitted, I mean, he was pretty specific about, yeah, these unreliables. Now, he didn't have much of a solution because he basically said, we're going to keep doing what we're doing. We're just going to do it reliably. But what, what do you think of, but he seems to have admitted at least that there was an over-reliance on solar. What do you think? Yeah, I think that was significant. I mean, he does it in a way where he's sort of like, well, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with renewables, but we just need reliable power too. You know? So, I mean, it is progress, right, for them to even admit that there's a problem. I, you know, I just think they're going to burn more gas and everybody knows it. I mean, the dishonesty from the renewables advocates and people that are renewables advocates, but are like professors at universities or are journalists at newspapers or whatever, pretending to be objective, you know, I think it's been exposed, you know, and there's just so much word salad that gets used to sort of suggest that you don't need to have base load. I mean, I, you've seen this, people suggesting that, that you don't need base load energy, you know, it's bizarre. Like we can just kind of naturally harmonize ourselves with the weather. I think that stuff is just not gonna cut it anymore. I think we clearly see people, no electricity is the basis of civilization, right? I mean, that like, Civilization is electric, like you have to have electricity. And I think there's not gonna, you know, the governor knows that his political future depends on this. So I don't think we're gonna, you know, I think they're gonna just keep gas plants operating. It's the end, end, end of the story. What do you think this is exposing just about our interconnectedness in California with these other grids? Because I think one of the parts of the mythology of solar and wind is that we're relying on it and we're sort of independent versus no, we're we're importing it from other places. Oh yeah, I mean, and it's a huge amount. What is, it's about a third of our power we import from other states. And of course they needed the power at the same time because the heat wave was regional. So we couldn't just call on Washington and Oregon and Arizona to just send us their power. Um, yeah, and then of course the, the whole idea of solar and batteries was this fantasy of, of independence, but in many cases, you can't, you know, if there's a blackout, they shut down the power from your own solar panels. <laughs> To your home, most people don't understand this. So even the illusion of independence is, even the idea of independence is illusory. Why do they, why do, they do that? You know, I think it has to do, um, you know, I, I'm not sure actually. Instead of speculating, I'm gonna say, I don't know. I've, I've seen this, I've seen explanations of it, but I haven't investigated it myself, but I think it's very interesting. Well, I mean, it's, I mean, part of it is probably that it's, it's by default going into the grid, which is part of what people don't, um, yeah. uh, don't get so that might be. Yeah, I'll, I'll look in. Um, I'll look into that. Yeah, I don't know if you, some way to, you, there's, there's probably some way there'd be some way to, to, to switch, you know, or to pull it from the grid yourself. But it's interesting to look at. Yeah, I've had some people say, no, no, mine is different, but maybe it's just you just have to wire it differently. I just don't know. Well, this leads to one of the good points you made in, in your Forbes pieces, or at least one of them about batteries. So can you just talk about, because sometimes the response is, oh, we just didn't have enough batteries. And if we had enough batteries, then we we'd never would have noticed this. Yeah, I mean, we have one of the biggest battery facilities in the world in Escondido, and it provides power for, what did we say? Was it 160,000 homes? I may be off by a factor of by, by, by an order of magnitude of 10, I don't know. Um, but like 160,000 homes for like four hours. You know, well, there's 40 million Californians and part of this issue is seasonal, right? So people go, well, we can store some power for a couple of hours for a few people. And then, but part of it is seasonal. So you have this, you know, like, like part of the problem was that there was no wind when it was sunny. That's, I mean, when it was hot, that's why it was hot because there's no wind. So. So all that electricity was missing. You need to have it stored for months. It's, it's inconceivable. In fact, most renewables advocates at this point acknowledge it's not going to be batteries. And as you know, since energy is neither created nor destroyed, it's only converted. Adding to energy conversions, the reason that electricity is so cheap is because supply and demand are perfectly balanced. You add in two additional conversions, one from electricity to some chemical batteries or some pumped hydro battery, and then taking it back out, you pay a huge penalty, somewhere in the order of 20 to 40%, depending on how you're doing it. So 
any amount of unreliability that we're adding to the grid makes electricity more expensive and makes it less reliable. If you're German, you know, the Germans, they just build a lot of, they're just better at their engineering than Californians. They know the risks of unreliability. So they'll just build more capacity and burn their coal more. But I think, you know, obviously here, um, we just, that was the big lesson. So we just don't have that amount of storage that this amount of unreliable power requires. Yeah, I think this, the neighboring states thing is a really important part of this, this picture because, I mean, if you think of a place like Denmark, the people hear, oh, Denmark gets X percent from, uh, from wind, but part of it is a tiny country that can offload, like it can overbuild wind turbines. And so it has way too much when it doesn't need it. And then it has not nearly enough when it does need it, but it can just pay people to offload their extra electricity when they when it's too much and then they can get it from neighbors but the bigger you are and the less other people are playing the game the less you can get away so california is trying to get away with this in terms of we we need to offload our solar when we don't need it and we need to import their stuff but guess what it gets hot there and everyone is playing this game at the margins where they're like oh i'm going to shut down as many reliable power plants as i can but i'm hoping there will be enough reliable power plants in utah to bail me out and I don't know if you saw the uh, the graphic I posted from EIA about Los Angeles, where the biggest source of you know from their power was coal, and then second was natural gas, and in, in you know during the heat wave, and I think that really needs to be exposed right now. Yeah, amen, man. I mean, it, it's the the agenda is a global grid. I mean, that was like always what they you know or a U.S. grid to start, but I mean. What you're talking about in the name of the environment is a massive expansion of humankind's environmental footprint, right? Huge amount increase in transmission and distribution lines from solar and wind farms. We want to basically California is just trying to wreck everybody else's electrical grid around us, right? We're like dumping power onto Arizona, paying the Arizonans to take it. We are billionaires. Tom Steyer tried to shut down their nuclear plant and replace it with unreliable solar and gas. You know, the, it's just what Germany's doing. I mean, Germany's now pressuring France to shut down its nuclear plants so it can build more gas plants that are more flexible. So it says, so yeah, I mean, this renewables, it's like renewables are parasitical on the grid in the sense that they're taking, they demand so much from the grid and they externalize onto the grid and onto the society and onto the environment, all of their negative externalities. Massive environmental footprint, three to four hundred times larger than gas or nuclear, all of the waste products, which have no solution, go to landfills, the cost of dealing with the unreliability, the batteries, the storage, the additional people involved in managing all that complexity, all that's externalized onto, onto the grid. And then of course, export and externalized onto our neighboring state grids as well. Yeah, it's interesting to put it in terms of externalities, because that's a favorite term of the of the, the climate catastrophists. I some, yeah, I think it's important just to all those variables you mentioned, when people see these claims about, oh, solar is cheaper than coal or solar is cheaper than gas, it's always partial cost accounting. So it's not accounting for all the things you just mentioned. It's just saying, oh yeah, well, we these solar panels are cheap. And so if you just took the electricity from this and you didn't need it to be reliable, then it would cost you, but you do need it to be reliable. So it's not, it's not replacing costs on the grid, it's adding costs to the grid. Um, question about how do you, so my view is this is the biggest kind of energy news story for at least those on the side of reliable energy. And it's also the news story that those on the side of unreliable energy really against energy, like it's the worst for them. And what I've noticed is that Bernie Sanders, AOC, Biden, like they're not engaging this at all. And what do you think we can do to get more attention to this because i think it's they, they really need to explain we're this what california did like a mini mini green new deal and it caused blackouts what's a real green new deal gonna do so what do you think we can do to draw attention to this yeah well i mean you've done a great job on twitter and and i've i've tried to kind of do the same thing which is just to kind of ask like i asked kamala harris you know who was promoting <laughs> i was like hey is California really the model? Because our electricity prices have gone up six times more than the rest of the United States, and now we're facing pretty serious blackouts. You know, that, that seemed to resonate. That just asking those questions seemed to resonate. I mean, look, I think it's important to point out that what Democrats, you know, God bless them, my, my people, what, we, what they want to do is California, they want to Californiaize 
the rest, they want to do what to the rest of the United States, what they've done in California. So I think it's just important to point that out, you know, that this is not like, there's not some mystery plan of what Democrats want to do nationally. It's happening in California. We've been living with the consequences of it, which have included, by the way, allowing the killing of endangered condors, uh, the killing of golden eagles, the killing of desert tortoises. And by the way, I don't know if you saw, but now they want to um, destroy endangered Joshua trees, which I think is closer to your home than, than mine. You're in Southern California, right, Alex? Yeah. So, I mean, it's like you kind of go, this is the plan. It's to massively expand the footprint of energy in the name of saving the environment. It's to kill endangered species. It's to make electricity expensive. And and it's to threaten the, the most basic functioning of the grid. It's a nightmare. I mean, I, I think it's, you know, Republicans have never done enough with this in some senses because they've always, I think they've always felt like the environment was a democratic thing. But, right. you know, if I were a Republican, I'd be like out there, be, I'd be like, this is what they want to do is to make it like California. It's nuts. So, I mean, it seems to me that that Republicans have an opportunity to kind of make some hay with this and try to propose a different path, which, you know, as you know, I think is just a real big focus on natural gas and nuclear. Yeah. So what do you think? Uh, so that, that raises my next question, which is what in California in particular, like if you had Gavin Newsom's ear, which is, I know the exact opposite of the truth, but what would you have him do? Or if you run for governor again in California, like what are you going to advocate for California? Yeah, I mean, so the first obvious thing is that you extend the license for Diablo Canyon. Just super easy to do. By the way, the head of our grid, Cal Iso, a guy named Steve Berberick, um, mistakenly said, because we were on the call and my, call, my, my friend and I were on the call and we, we both asked questions about nuclear, we're the only ones, and he said, oh, oh, we can't change the Diablo decisions, too late for that. That's not true. Uh, nuclear Regulatory Commission absolutely could extend that license. That is a gold-plated plant. Can you imagine the most neurotic people in the world live near Diablo Canyon? They've made that plant so gold-plated, it could run until 2080. You know, it could go forever, basically. You just change out the parts. So obviously extend that. Second thing is you would just use your emergency powers to restart San Onofre. People don't know this about San Onofre nuclear plant. Of course, you know, but it's this plant. It's this beautiful plant. It's amazing. It's right there on the beach. Like you can yeah, go to- Yeah, I was just the there yesterday. Yeah, you surfed yesterday. there, I bet, right? I have, so, yeah, it's, it's not. Yeah. I was going down to go paragliding below it, but it, it's, it's right. amazing. I mean, it's gorgeous. One yeah. of my friends actually said to me once, he, this is one of the best compliments I got. He, I think he said to his daughter, he said like, you know that guy, Alex, like he's gonna, he's gonna make sure they restart that San Onofre plant someday. And I thought, that would be great. High praise. High praise. Yeah. Go to, yeah. You'd, that'd be a massive life achievement. But look at the plane. You know, you look at it from, from, if you look at it from outer space, people can just Google images it. It's tucked in between the freeway and the beach. I mean, the thing must take up like, it must be a smaller footprint than your average high school powering 3 million homes. I mean, it's just exactly what you would want as an environmentalist. I detail on Apocalypse Never, as you know, how the previous governor, Jerry Brown, with financially motivations and, and, and religious motivations, shut it down at a cost to ratepayers and shareholders of $4.7 billion. It would have cost about $800 million or $4 billion less to just replace the steam generator, right? The thing that turns the, you know, that you heat the water and it turns into steam and it turns to turbines, that's it. And everyone like, but yet, you know, the mainstream press, you read the newspapers in California, their coverage of it was, oh, the plant was broken. It, like, it, was, it was fine. They had to replace the steam generator. There were some problems with the Mitsubishi. There's a whole bunch of, yeah, a bunch of people made mistakes. Fine. You don't junk the plant. You know, it'd be like, oh my gosh, um, we got bad bolts in the new span of the east span of the Bay Bridge, which happened. We're gonna take down the bridge and have ferries or something, you know, solar power, wind powered ferries. And we're gonna take, that's just yeah, they the have dumb to be sail ferries to keep yeah. the analogy. Yeah. So definitely restart San Onofre and then, and then look, just make California like France. So just add some reactors at Diablo Canyon, add some reactors. 
at, uh, at, at San Onofre, when you have too much power, which would, would you know, reliably too much power sometimes, then you can make hydrogen right there from the ocean. In fact, you know, Diablo Canyon already makes hydrogen. Um, and everybody loves hydrogen. It's actually something that, that people like us that like reliable power think hydrogen is potentially the future and environmental things. So you sort of get some hydrogen power going. Stop doing those crazy industrial solar projects that are killing desert tortoises and Joshua trees and just get California going back nuclear again. And you know, until that happens, you'll you'll use gas. You know, I mean, I don't think, you know, gas, I mean, my view as you know, is gas is better than coal, but it's not as good as nuclear. So the right direction is towards nuclear. Look, Gavin could, you know, here's the crazy thing, man. Gavin wants to be president. Him coming out as pro-nuclear would be just that amount of edge that would make him a kind of edgy, cool Democrat rather than the boring 1960s bad Democrat that he is right now. You know, he needs some spice in that just puffy, woke thing that he is right now. I think it'd be great for him. Yeah, it is. It is. There is an opportunity for who owns the nuclear uh, issue. And I mean, I think the Republicans should take it if, I mean, they're more pro-nuclear. So they, I mean, they should be doing it and they're not doing it enough. And, and it's, yeah, I think it's just this, just being like a renewables only Democrat is, is a losing uh, is a losing position. So let me ask about before we go to um, wildfires. I want to talk a little bit more about PG&E. So can you just talk about what happened there, and particularly the role of renewable policies in contributing to the lack of maintenance that contributed to those wildfires? Yes. Yeah, this is important because this is very badly misunderstood. But basically. So all your, your, you and your listeners all basically know, but electricities are natural monopolies. We don't let many companies compete to string up electrical line everywhere or power plants that just become chaos. So we have one big utility in many countries that's owned by the, the government and other countries like ours, mostly 70% is private, but heavily regulated so that they have to get approval to build plants or do big projects or raise electricity rates or whatever. So, so normally a normally functioning utility like PG&E you know, would be, you know, basically doing the stuff you have to do to have a lot of electrical lines in a state with so much forest like California, where people live near so much forest and there's so many trees, which is that you just have to maintain distance. I mean, it's great to bury lines if you can afford it. It's very expensive, but mostly you just gotta, you just gotta maintain the distance between the wires and the vegetation. I mean, it's like we do it in my house, right? It's like, you just gotta do that or you can have fires that way. Well, but instead of doing that under pressure from the previous and existing governor and the legislature and the supermajority of Democrats, PG&E basically didn't do any of that for like the last 20 years. San Diego Power and Electric, by the way, or sorry, San Diego Gas and Electric actually did do more of that work. In fact, they're kind of the model for, the, for how PG&E should do it. But PG&E didn't do that because it was under all this pressure to do all these renewables. So you know, it's money and it's the focus of the CEO. I mean, that whole that whole utility, because it's basically controlled by the government, has basically just been on a full stretch to just do renewables, 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 and shut down its nuclear plant, rather than doing some of the basic maintenance of a utility, which was maintain its line. So now they're going to have to spend, you know, ungodly sums of money every year and potentially planned blackouts to prevent more forest fires so it's just a nightmare. You know, it's one of those things where it's like you kind of go, oh, yeah, that sounds good, renewables. And then you kind of go, oh, I didn't realize that it would mean more blackouts, more forest fires, less maintenance, higher prices. I mean, nobody signed up for those things. I mean, talk about the dishonesty, the fundamental dishonesty and the knock-on effects of using unreliable power are, are beginning to be felt now, I think, really acutely. How... How much documentation of there is there rather of this, you know, switch of focus from PG&E? Like, I'm curious who admits what. I mean, it's hard to it's 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 really qualitative, and when you talk to folks there, or if you just kind of go, but if you go look through their annual plans, and if you go look through just, I mean, it's one of those things where where one of the UC Berkeley economists was writing about this and he's like, okay, everybody knows like the main event in California is doing renewables. Like I, it's like, kind of like, how do you even, we, we, we counted the money at one point, we came up with something like a hundred 
billion has been spent in California on renewables over the last decade. You know, it's just the, it's just everything that PG&E wants to do. I mean, that and all of their kind of, you know, racism workshops, um, you know, between their racism workshops and making the grid unreliable, they don't seem to have time to keep the vegetation away from the electric wires. I mean, you know, it's kind of like, it's a massively distract. It's like these companies, they've actually, they're completely, they're not even doing their basic work anymore. That's how badly this kind of radical left ideology is eating into some of our most basic institutions, including utilities. Definitely. So last thing on this topic. So remember in Iraq, you know, they had that deck of cards for the villains of Iraq. So like who yeah. would be on the deck of cards oh. for the blackout villains? So you're saying I only get 52 villains? Is that... <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, number one is the governor because he is the most, he appoints, so there's three agencies. It's just an alphabet soup, but basically it's the Public Utilities Commission, it's CalISO, which is the grid managers, and it's the California Energy Commission, which permits the plants. He appoints everybody. This is not some bipartisan exercise or some like good government, whatever. He appoints everybody. So the governor runs energy for the state. I mean, really, like, and like, and, you know, and we know that the governors even in the past would just call up commissioners and be like, hey, I want you to vote like this. And you're not supposed to do that. But, you know, that's why they that's why they, they they've, they've continued to hide all these emails from former Governor Jerry Brown and these public utilities commissioners. Anyway, on that was on, by the way, on the, clo on the closure of San Onofre, they've hidden those emails. So it has to be Gavin Newsom. Number two has to be Jerry Brown, because he's the last guy that handed this steaming pile to Gavin. After that, I would say Michael Picker, who was the last head of the CPUC, Cliff, Cliff reference something something is the new head of the PUC, who's Gavin's guy. He's oh, he's probably three. You know, Picker's number four. You know, um, I would you know, and all, I mean, it's hard to say. God, there's so many people that are responsible for this. I mean, what's what about the role of the news media? You know, I mean, like the new, like the, you read the journalists now. And by the way, I will say California journalists did much better on these wildfires than the New York Times or New York Magazine or the Atlantic, which are basically just ideological pamphlets at this point. But, you know, what, what is the response? What is the intellectual responsibility of these journalists that have been lying to the public for 10 years about renewables? I mean, it's, it's, I have to say, I kind of go, it's the responsibility of the journalists, the responsibility of the activists, of the scientists. Because, you know, there's ways in which it's, it's like both the governor and the people that he appoints are all kind of tools and puppets. I mean, I don't mean, I don't mean it in a mean way, <laughs> a little bit mean, but I mean, I mean more like, you know, there, there's sort of this kind of, you know, you know, like it's funny, like in Apocalypse Never, like, I mean, I didn't, you know, it's, I mean, Jerry Brown was different than Gavin. I mean, Gavin is truly kind of an empty tool you know, get where Jerry was this really ideological, true believer, you know, I mean, I kind of get the sense that Gavin would sacrifice his best friend, you know, for his political, whereas Jerry was like a true believer. So anyway, I just kind of go news media somewhere in there, environmentalists, you know, deserve some responsibility and the whole renewable energy advocacy community for the last 50 years, I think at bottom is the people that are responsible. I'm actually now. You give me a lot of names. I'm gonna make these cards. I'm gonna make a deck. Of, All right. A blackout deck. I'll bet. I'll bet I could sell a bunch of them. Uh, I'll yeah. I'll I'll help you sell them, and and I'll and I'm happy to advise you on who should be. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The the who I'm definitely gonna add is the CEOs of the digital companies who are pretending to be 100% renewable, because it's so damaging when Apple says, "Oh, we run on 100% renewable electricity and solar." Like yes. then people think, "Oh, if Apple runs on it and they're tech leader, then everyone can run on it." This is really thank you. Yes, by the way, Amazon uses the wind tax credit as a tax shelter. I haven't written anything on it yet. I just haven't had time. Oh, you should. Oh, that'd be great. And it's like, and it's like, and now they're out there advertising as though some kind of benevolence on their part. Oh my gosh, Amazon investing in this, in, you know, crummy industrial dumping industrial wind turbines on, on poor communities. It's the worst case of environmental justice in America right now. 
you know, I mean, I'll tell you the other thing, you know, I had, I was told, but I never, I didn't follow up on, I was just too busy. I had too many other stories, but it was like, I was told that the governor, I mean, it sounds true. The governor asked Apple, Google, Facebook to fire up their diesel generators during the blackout. I mean, of course, right? Like, I mean, they, of course those guys have diesel and generators. Of course they have them. And, and you know, that and gas generators. Yeah, they don't advise us a, to get if them. They didn't have them. There'd be like a shareholder. That'd be like the, the the CEO should be sacked if you don't. If you were like betting Amazon on wind energy, <laughs> like <laughs> you'd be fired as CEO. I mean, I mean, you know, Warren Buffett knows that wind energy isn't powering servers, which require perfect twenty four seven uninterrupted power, or you're in real trouble. I mean, of course. All right, let's go. Speaking of another villain thing, let's talk about the wildfires. So we, and, and I want to start out, you, you have a new piece on this on Forbes that I'll refer people to, but I want to start asking just theoretically, because I think people think about this. Actually, let me, let me start out with how I think the media portrays this issue, which I think the basic policy people think is there should be no wildfires ever. So trees should never go on fire. And then yes. the way to achieve that is to not use fossil fuels. So then yes. that's like the policy. And so let's ask, what should the policy be toward wildfires? Yeah. Well, so the first thing is just look, anybody that hikes in California, anybody that's been here in California, I mean, we get whatever, billions of people or something, you know, like so many people come to California, you go to the trail. I was, I was hiking, by the way, I was driven. My wife and I were in Sonoma last week. Our, our Airbnb canceled. We were near Healdsburg, right? So it's like, like, you know, um, we were in it. I'm not, I don't, I don't love, I mean, it's too smoky out to run, right? Like nobody likes this. On the other hand, the most important thing that you have to know is that four and a half million acres burned in the pre-industrial Edenic past. And they were started by Native Americans, many of them, by the way, and by nature, lightning usually. Four and a half million acres burned annually last year, 280,000 did. At most, a million or a million and a half acres burns every year, which is a third of the historical annual average. So the dominant view among scientists in California and, and environmentalists is that we need more fires. Like, like, it's just kind of like, that's the first thing I, I was like, I was having a hard time writing that piece because I was at first I was debunking this idea that there's some trend of greater fires. There's no trend. It's this huge decrease. But I was like, as soon as I debunked it, I was like, well, I, I was like, I'm worried if I debunk it, I'm reinforcing the sense that fires right. are bad. So I was like, I'm going to end up rebunking. Is that even a thing? <laughs> I'm going to end up bunking yeah. in my debunking. You know, so I was, and, I, and you kind of catch yourself. You're, you know, you kind of go, I kind of go, it's not that there's that many more fires now. But then you're kind of like, well, then I'm just suggesting that there's too many fires. not. Like, so, you know, now, I mean, here's the other thing that's so interesting. Trump, everybody was attacking Trump for saying that you had to rake the forests. Okay, it's not exactly raking, but everybody knew what he meant, which is what we call the mechanical removal of wood fuel, you know, of fuel accumulations. You can remove the fuel accumulation in forests either through fires, which everybody Every scientist, every environmentalist prefers. There's all sorts of benefits to fires. But in some places, actually, for a variety of reasons, you can't do that or you shouldn't do that. And you have to use mechanical methods. Well, so after all of the drama, you know, Trump, oh, what a climate denier, talking about the need to rake, how ridiculous. After all that, he and Gavin Newsom, our governor, a couple of days ago, just cut a deal to double the amount of land that we, you know, I think it's state and federal, of land that's both burned or with mechanical removal. So, I mean, it's like, there, it's a double game. I mean, on the one hand, they just use climate alarmism to sell their crappy renewables. On the other, you know, they know that they gotta have fires and clear the forests. But I do think that some of this consciousness change has to happen too, because a big part of the reason we don't want fires is because we don't like all the smoke and it's terrible. But I think people have to understand that, that first of all, it's natural it's healthy for the forest and we may need some more of it than we've had in the past. Yeah, the, the part of the reason I started with what should the policy be because it's framed as like all fire is bad. And cause it, it, cause you could argue that, I mean, I think the best would, I mean, the best would be if you could somehow manage the forest perfectly without any fires ever being necessary. 
if there was a way to do that, which I don't think there is. But I mean, I think that would be that would be good. But yeah, they just like if you say, well, there's this fire deficit, we have less fire. That's true, but it's not even we don't even know if that's better. I mean, we want, we want to, so what about, can you talk about the distinction between the different types of fires yeah. and brush? Cause this is a point you make in your book. And I think it's really useful for just not thinking of all forms of fires and all forms of forest in the same way. Right. Yeah. So, so as everybody knows, California is massive, right? So our latitude is huge, three times greater latitude than Washington state. And so where I live and where you live are like different countries. I mean, you know, you go to Northern California, it's rainforest. I mean, you know, redwood forests are actually rain, are actually technically rainforest. It's, red, it's rainforest, it's cold and wet. It's like Oregon for most of the year, for a lot of the year. You go to San Diego, it's Baja, Mexico. I mean, it's totally different. So these ecosystems are very different. Now, most fire, most forests need fires. They have different, they, they have tended to have different periods where they go through. There is one set of fires where we don't need more fires. I'm sorry, there's one set of forests where we don't need more fires and that's what we call the shrublands or we say the chaparral, which is also, you know, a Spanish word. And that's more where you are. That's more the Malibu fires, the coastal, that kind of shrubs, you know, some people don't even call it forests. We have too many fires there in that kind of ecosystem. Um, so many fires that sometimes we lose that ecosystem and it flips into more of a desert ecosystem, which we don't want because we don't have enough of that ecosystem and we're losing it. So we have too many fires. Well, where are those fires coming from? Well, they came from the fact that the population in California increased by six to 10 million over the period that we had more wildfires. And that was mostly, it's not that Smokey the Bear, you know, don't smoke cigarettes, you know, I mean, don't smoke cigarettes, but but, but it's not what's causing the wildfires. What's causing the wildfires is like the transmission and distribution lines, again, by the utilities. So there is good reason for a lot of fire suppression and those kinds of shrublands. Most other forests, both the coastal redwoods, the Sierra mountain forests, you do want periodic forests to go through. Five to 10 years is great burning off that understory, you know, um, you know, we employ a lot of former prisoners and clean prisoners to do it. It is labor intensive work, but it's kind of like, it is what is required to maintain this natural beauty, which is one of the main reasons we all live here in the first place. One quote you had that I found fantastic from the article this morning is from 1898. And before I, I read it, I'll just give a, a, a note I forwarded to you that I got from a listener and basically said he was on a trip with his daughter in the area where there was fires. And basically she's thinking like, oh my gosh, this is the face of, of climate change, right? And basically if, oh, if only we hadn't been using fossil fuels, I would be treated to a completely pristine uh, Pacific experience. And so with that in mind, and it's understandable given we're taught that nature is a delicate nurturer and that everything dislikable in nature comes from human impacts. Uh, so you had this quote from 1898, of the hundreds of persons who visit the Pacific Slope of California every summer to see the mountains, reported a U.S. government scientist in 1898 that surveyed the region, few see more than the immediate foreground in a haze of smoke. It was on fire all the time, man. Like it was just on, I mean, think about it. Four and a half million acres, three times, that's three times more smoke, three times more area burning, three times more smoke than we will have this year. And everybody's complaining about it, right? So- And that's I mean, average, it, that's average. Average, annual. right, so, right, so bigger years. And all that, but that, you know, I interviewed the scientist, he's a scientist at University of California, Berkeley. And he was like, I think it's higher than that. He's like, I think there was even more, he said it's not, he's like, that's the minimum. There's, he thinks there was much more by Native Americans. There's some disagreement about how much of these fires are lightning and Native America, it doesn't matter. But we find this everywhere. You know, Sir Francis Drake, he shows up in New Zealand and he's like, the islands is just on fire and smoking all the time. So this picture of nature as smoke free is a picture of the Garden of Eden. It is a religious idea. And similarly, the idea of fire, this is just, this is just, uh, this is just kindergarten, church school, religious bullshit. I mean, the whole thing is so ridiculous. You know, and, and so like I even quote 
the person I kind of go after today who really deserved it, this guy, David Wallace Wells, who wrote this terrible book about Well, you didn't change. just go after him today. You've gone after him many. Actually, I think okay. Bjorn goes after him more in his book too, but he, this guy deserves infinite. So anyway, go on about him. He it's, deserves it's infinite going after. It's sad because he's, he's such a nice guy, you know? I, and by the way, for the record, I invited him. I went, because he, he, he tweeted, just to be fair, because people are going to think I'm being mean to him. He tweeted like on Friday, it was one of the inspirations for this piece, by the way. He tweeted, oh, oh, noble Redwoods, something like, you know, oh, noble Redwoods that have been around since the Black Death and, you know, since Muhammad going up in flames because of climate change or something, right? And he gets like 8,000 retweets at this point. And I, I responded to him on Twitter. We know each other. We follow each other, whatever. And I responded, and I was like, I was like, David, that's just wrong, and you should correct it. And dude, why don't you come out to California? And I'm gonna take you camping because in this book, he's funny. He goes, I'm not an environmentalist or something, as though that like, gives him credibility. I'm not a nature person. Well, yeah, if you were a nature person, and you would go and hike on the trails. Sorry, this is, I'm continuing my story. I began at the beginning. Like every trailhead, almost in California, has something about fire as part. Of, it's like one. It's fire's role is like one of the first things they teach you in California's beautiful visitor centers and, and trailhead uh, signage. You know, your friend who emailed you, whose daughter was like, oh my gosh, just like whatever. She, they should have read the signs at the trailhead or they should have read the signs in the visitor center because this message, by the way, I mean, I, it's been around since at least the 90s, but I remember getting it as a kid in the 80s. So, I mean, this idea that fire, I mean, whatever, we've known, right, the whole time. So clearly the punchline is, they are imposing a religious view of Eden as fireless and as fire as something from hell onto reality, as opposed to just actually, you know, it's so striking, Alex. I mean, I was like, I interviewed like six of the world's best experts on forests, fires, and climate change. I'm not bragging, like, like it's so easy. You go to their website, they list their phone numbers often on their websites. And I go, can I interview you? Why don't journalists at the New York Times, New York Magazine, The Atlantic, why don't they bother picking up the phone and interviewing one of these scientists? Because the first thing the scientists will tell you is they'll go, oh yeah, yeah, no, that's not, that's not unusual. You know, there's a woman quoted in a different article today where she goes, a meteorologist, she goes, people have no memory, you know? Oh my God, it's so unusual, lightning storms in the summer. Well, we had that in 2008. Like, it's not like digging through archival newspapers you know, I mean, like I point out, we had these big fires in the early 20th century. You do go through, but it, it's a weird, it's like, they, it's not just that they are ignorant about history. They don't want to know history. They don't want to know ecology because it gets in the way of their religious story that they're telling. Yeah, and this, this idea of, I sometimes call it the perfect planet premise or the delicate nurture premise. It's so deep seated because it, it's just this again this and it is a religious kind of picture of oh like the unimpacted planet was Eden, and then we're fallen to the extent we impacted and it's a hell narrative. I mean, it basically says if you yeah. if you do the wrong thing and you impact nature, then you're literally going to burn uh, up. And so that's why I think it's yeah. just so valuable to have these kinds of facts that you've been sharing about. No, actually, like the world is on fire all the time. And, and hopefully what we do is we try to optimize that so we can minimize yes. the unnecessary fires. So with that in mind, just one final question. What, do you, what, what policies do you think are, are the main policies California should adopt with fires going forward? And I, and I would just say, I do not consider it a viable policy to say our policy is for the whole world to stop using fossil fuels. Not just because that's not the dominant cause, but that is, you can't even do anything with that. What are you gonna just attack China? It's just such a fatal, we, this is a little yeah. rant, but we have such a fatalism with everything environmental. Like, and it's just the only solution is stop using the energy that, that we use. One of my favorite tweets I ever did, which is inspired by a friend of mine, was like, Elon Musk thinks that we can terraform Mars, but that two degrees Celsius warmer will make the planet unlivable. Right. That's great. It's just bizarre. I mean, well, but first of all, as you know, I mean, the punchline goes, it's like, we have to save civilization, Alex, by, by no longer using the, by no longer relying on the basis of civilization. With, right? Yeah, no machines, it. basically. Yeah. You can't yeah, we're not, I mean, it's obviously, it's an anti-civilization story dressed up as a, 
defense of civilization. I mean, I think it's quite transparent. I mean, I was going to say, I mean, it seems like, yeah, I mean, so anyway, there's sort of the ideological question. I, mean, I was going to add one other thing too, which is that I can't help but notice that there's a fragility narrative for sure. I mean, you know, you've seen Jonathan Haidt, you know, it's not exactly our issue, but you see these guys, Jonathan Haidt, these psychologists who say that all the stuff around trigger warnings and safe spaces, this infantilizing of college students, this overprotectiveness is clearly been, a, you know, in strong, has been emerging strongly in the culture and around parenting and whatever. Well, I mean, I think that the, the you know, the these, these pseudo environmentalists, these these apocalyptic environmentalists, were the first to pioneer this fragility narrative. You know, I mean, it's just it's like, oh my gosh, that tree's been around for two thousand years, but a fire is going to kill it over the weekend. Really? Like this is the first fire? Into I mean, it, it's it's like it's both a historical, but I think it's got it, it it betrays a sense in which which nature and life are fragile, which I can't help but thinking is a kind of projection. You know, people feeling themselves sort of, these are insecure people often trying to get social status by being alarmist and virtue signaling. You know, I noticed that the New York Times reporter who wrote this really misleading piece went on to Twitter yesterday or today and was like, everybody should express their sadness about this fire. It was so sad, this fire. Is it a journalist? Yeah, it's a journalist that she's retweeting. She's retweeting people with little emoji tears. Oh, I'm so, I'm like, sad like we should be glad that the that they're letting the fires be in forest because the problem was when they put out the fires i mean this is just basic elementary stuff so the fact that it's the new york times perpetrating the misinformation kind of tells you everything okay so what should we do i mean i think there's some policy questions like let's just take the like let's just take since there's consensus now that there's too much buildup, right so trump and gavin agree so now it's just a question of how do you pay for it and what are you doing? Are you doing fires? Are you doing um, uh, mechanical? So, you know, to your point, if you're doing mechanical fires, you're using a hell of a lot of fossil fuels to transport the trucks, transport the workers, use the chainsaws, load up the trucks. So you got to, because what you do when you do mechanical, you're chainsawing stuff, you're putting it on trucks and you're moving it out of there, right? Um, so, you know, look, I just kind of go, if you're a rich community in the Sierra foothills, right, which is the foothills of the Sierra Nevada mountains, and you don't want all the smoke, or you're the Bay Area, and we're like, we don't want all the smoke. It gets, you know, gets the, I don't like it, because my, my wife was like, she's like, well, I don't like all the smoke. I'm like, I don't like the smoke either, but like, first of all, it's, you know, what the forests need, but if we don't want the smoke, there is an alternative, which we, we can pay for mechanical removing of undergrowth, but might cost more. And I don't know that it should be just fairly distributed in all Californians. I kind of think I'm kind of on the side of people like, look, if you're rich and you live in the Berkeley Hills, you know, or whatever, upper middle class, and you live in the Berkeley Hills, we should have to pay for the cost of not having a fire treatment. There should be some, you get to live, because the thing is living in nature is, is expensive, <laughs> you know? Harmonizing with nature turns out to be an expensive aristocratic thing, right? That's just what it's always been. And so you should have to pay for it. I don't know why, I don't know why it's fair for us to make inner city African-American Latino working class people struggling to make a wage in Los Angeles. Why should they have to pay for like mechanical, you know, and that goes for frankly the wires and the whole rest. So, so I think they're, you, know, you kind of go, what's the right policy? I go, the right conversation to have first is some kind of an open, honest conversation about this. Now, our governor appears absolutely incapable of, of having that kind of conversation. He just wants to kind of get up and he's so reactive. And so it just always wants to get up and be like, oh, a fire. So I'm going to make this fire deal as opposed to like, look, actually, you know, like we have to have a talk about this because, because there's a bunch of, I think, genuine questions of what's fair that gets raised around this stuff that currently just isn't being talked about, you know, um, and because we're sort of caught in this biblical narrative and this idea that these things are kind of, that they fall on all of us equally when they clearly don't. I like that idea of having a conversation. So I'd say at least two starting points of the conversation have to be one is that forest catching on fire is a natural uh, phenomenon and two, that the overwhelming determinant of forest fires and how they affect us is forest management. 
uh, policy. And it's definitely not the level of CO2 in the atmosphere, certainly that can influence it some. But it's, you know, if you think about a house, like if a house catches on fire, it's not usually like the local weather was a degree or two warmer or it was drier. Right. It's usually the house fire management policy was wrong, right? Because either someone lit something in there or they had, you know, they're putting cigarettes. And so that's what's this idea that the temperature went up one degree and now everything is catching on. Does people know how warm fire is? Well, it's yeah. like 89 degrees. There's a whole, there's a book yeah. with the title that has 451 in it. I mean. I mean, they're already starting to retreat. I see on Twitter that the usual suspects are sort of retreating into this thing of, well, we can show climate change is drying out the wood. Yeah, and I acknowledge that in the two long articles I wrote and in my book and whatever. But first of all, there is a major study that tracks 37 different regions in the United States and finds that climate's not the role. It's just human land use, you know? I mean, this gets to this other issue, which is the ways in which climate change has made everybody forget about the environment. <laughs> you know, like, or that the that the climate, the climate gods are so powerful, they're just, you know, they're just, whoa, they're just changing everything on the, as opposed to like, no, like what we do with the land and how many forests there are and how many, you know, these things are of huge importance and they used to be talked about more. You know, 20, 30 years ago, this was what environmentalism or conservation was before it got drowned out by climate apocalypse. So yeah. They're under I, our control too. Like that's like, we can actually do something about them. There's just this helplessness, like literally what you cannot do any, I mean, short of declaring World War Three and four simultaneously, like you cannot, you cannot eliminate CO2 emissions. I mean, nobody can. Oh, we can eventually. No, no, but I mean, I mean now, but I mean, in terms of, if you think the world is, I mean, in terms of like, that's not something anyone, you know, you can't, you're not going to stop trying. I mean, I think if you think it's wrong, you yeah. should advocate against it, but it's like, it's this help. Even if, even if you were doing everything you could to minimize it, you have to use human ingenuity to deal with any negative consequences now and all the negative yeah. consequences of nature operating, which I think is what's dominant. And so this yeah. idea that we can't do anything is just so anti-technology and, and anti what so many of these people pretend to be. And that's why I brought up Elon Musk, because again, he's like super optimistic. I can terraform Mars, but oh, if the earth chemistry changes, well, it's all you got to do is just buy Teslas and stop doing what you're doing. Yeah. Not yeah. The, I mean, why doesn't it, it, he manage the, help manage the forest? Yeah, I mean, these are just, look, these are, we know what this is. These are people trying to sell you renewables and, and batteries. And these are people that have a self-interest and every time, I mean, I described in this piece I did for New York Post a couple of weeks ago that you, you, you have to understand that there has been a decision that was made not once, but has repeatedly been made for 30 years by environmental activists, by climate activists, by journalists, by the New York Times, that they are going to just take every natural disaster and turn it into a climate disaster. And they're going to do it whether there's evidence for it or not because it's the only way they know how to increase the saliency of climate like climate the, the question the salience of, of climate change is very low in general like it's just not a top concern for people but fires appeal to our you know tickle our reptilian brains in such a way that they want to just hijack every natural disaster i mean i think there's almost like a kind of pollution of consciousness that occurs here where it's like, you know what, it can't just be a fire. Like it has to be like, like, like I can't just read the New York Times about, I can't just read the newspaper about a fire. It's gotta be about the end of the world. It's gotta be about harmonizing with nature through renewables. I mean, come on. I mean, I think your point is well taken in the time sense. In other words, when I'm thinking about decarbonization, I'm thinking a hundred years, you know, hundred, 200 years. We've gotta do something about the, the, the buildup of wood fuel now. <laughs> You know, like, and of course, that's what the politicians end up doing. And so, but it's very cynical, honestly, it's very cynical. And I see it by people that know better, even with the stuff where they go, well, I'm not saying climate's the only thing, you know, it's like, it's just not, it's not nearly as important as the accumulation of wood fuel in the, in the mountain forests and in the transmission lines. Like, it's just not nearly as important. And the scientists will all say that. You know, at best, they'll say it's a minority factor, but a lot of cases, they're just like, it's just not what's going on here. Yeah, so I, I, the more I, I've 
I thought this during our last interview, and I think it now again, just these issues, these natural disaster issues, they're not problems that the people want to solve. They're like a solution for their desire to get us to do yeah. things. Their opportunity, that's another good one, which was sort of, and I'd sort of kind of touch at it briefly at the end of Apocalypse Never, you know, which is that the alarmism is the goal. I mean, I think sometimes I've made the mistake of being like, you know, and I just sort of said it here, they're selling renewables and efficiency. Yeah, for sure. They're doing that, right? The solar panels and electric cars or whatever. They're selling the whole little agenda, for sure. But also, they're just, it's just the alarmism itself. So the news media, obviously the journalists, David Wallace Wells at New York Magazine wants to get a lot of retweets of that tweet. So he's going to tweet something just hyperbolic and wrong. And the New York Times, you know, she obviously wants all these people to go on her page and talk about how sad they are. I mean, I find that weird, but, but I think that makes people feel good about themselves. So clearly, like the alarmism, it's just, you know, it's just the Jehovah's Witness. No disrespect to Jehovah's Witnesses, but it's the Jehovah's Witnesses you know, they're not out there being like, I'm going to sell Jehovah's Witness books. I mean, sure, they might want to sell some, you might want to sell you some Jehovah's Witness, but they're, they're out there telling you that the end is coming if you don't repent. Like, that's the whole point of being out there. I don't argue with Jehovah's Witnesses as a rule, you know? I mean, I take the literature because it's always fun to see how apocalypse is coming along, but I don't argue with them. I argue with, with on this stuff because it's clearly getting in the way of, of doing the right thing, both by our forests and obviously just to return to what we started about, our electric grid. I mean, this climate fire alarmism is being used to undermine our electricity, right? And, and that's, that's why we have to push back against it. Yeah, unfortunately, I mean, I think it's, we got the counter narrative in terms of fires are a natural thing. I think that's really important. And then the electricity thing is, it's bad, but it's such an opportunity. So I'm glad that I could get you on uh, to talk about it. Okay, so obviously they should follow you on Twitter, Schellenberger MD. Obviously they should get Apocalypse Never. Uh, what else should our audience do? Well, that's pretty good, man. I mean, if they could buy copies of Apocalypse Never for their kids and grandkids and everybody that they know, that's another good step. Um, and then I think they should buy this deck of cards that you just committed to making with my my help of um, I mean, uh, maybe we'd wanna, we one possibility is to make it global because I you know I was like I could put some Germans on there I could put some Brits and French and then you could translate anyway there's a <laughs> yeah well yeah so we should start yeah well email about the list I don't think I mean if yeah. it's a global list that's very very brief uh time i've but uh yeah. yeah i think it's good i want to play with those uh th that deck of cards and i think it would be a fun it would be a fun thing to have yeah we could rebrand we could get like the jenga puzzle and just rebrand it the california electricity grid which is how is this the if we remove this <laughs> natural gas power plant will it all come down crashing that is, down that is a really good <laughs> yeah that's that's another good idea I would, all, I would definitely, I've only played Jenga twice, but I would play it all the time if it was literally like Diablo Canyon, Santa Nova. Well, yeah, you would take out the, the reliable, you take out the reliable pieces and then you just put more garbage solar and wind energy on top just to kind of weight the system more. Well, yeah, those pieces would be very unevenly weighted. So they would just right, exactly. immediately crash the whole system. Okay, well, so we're just going to go into board game design. That's the... What's the implication of this? It's clearly where the money's at. Uh, awesome. And they can, I remember, they can contact you, particularly if they want you to speak or something, at uh, michaelschellenberger at gmail.com. Absolutely, man. Always a pleasure, dude. Unreliables. You got it. Yeah, it's good. You know, more and more people are using it. Let's let's make yeah. it a household I mean, term. It, it, it just happens to describe them a lot better than renewables. Nothing renewables about unreliables. Exactly. Uh, awesome, man. It's great to see you. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Yeah, Alex. Thanks for having right. me, dude. Take care. Thanks again to Michael Schellenberger for coming on the show. When I talk to Mike, it always reinforces to me how important framework is to our thinking on these issues. So framework is our starting structure when we're thinking and when we're communicating. And in particular, it has to do with our values. So what we think is good, how we define good, and our assumptions, what, what we're assuming in terms of how cause and effect works 
in the world. And we see this with this issue of fire because there's this assumption that nature is a delicate nurturer or a perfect planet. And then part of that we imagine is there's no fire and all wildlife and is, is uh, and for, including forests is just super easy to see. And you know, there's beautiful visibility. And then if we see smoke, then, oh, that must be human beings did something bad. You know, we had an impact and that's why there's something we don't like. And over and over and over, this delicate nurture premise, perfect planet premise distorts thinking. And so one thing we can do is really become aware of the natural, as in non-human impacted state of things, and to, to bring that up in different kinds of situations so that people don't have the view, oh, well, nature was perfect, and then we ruined it. Over and over and over, it should be, no, nature is wildly imperfect from a human perspective, and we need to dramatically transform and improve it. And if, the more that's viewed as the case, the more people will be very wary of restricting productive activity because they'll they'll they won't see it as oh it's just to spoil this perfect planet they they would see actually no it's made this imperfect planet into a far more livable place and one perspective on that is just the you know what we can achieve and the kind of value we can gain with our limited time on earth is just totally you know it's just totally different on today's planet versus 200 years ago. You think about, well, how long does it take you to get food and even really high quality food compared to the planet of centuries past? It was not nearly as nourishing a planet. You, you might have to spend hours and hours a day to get very, very meager food. Or you think about your safety, how safe are you now compared to what you were um, in the past? It's just a totally, totally uh, different level of that. And if you think about from the perspective of how much opportunity is there to be fulfilled, you think about today's planet, you have so much time, just period, like time on earth. And then you have so much control of your time, what you do at that time on earth. And then you have so many options in terms of all of these uh, amazing things you can do with that time that you have a lot of, and that you have a lot of control over. And all of these things are just directly connected to energy. So one perspective on energy that I like a lot is energy is machine food or machine calories. And one helpful way to think of this is the reason we live at such a high level is machine labor, is getting machines to do work for us that we then don't have to do ourselves. And then machines can do a lot of types of work that we can't do with our physical bodies, like in, you know, be an incubator, like we can't do that. But it also just gives us the ability to do much more work because if, if our limited physical bodies aren't the limiting factor, then we can have the potentially infinite amount or unlimited, I should say, amount of work done by machines. And so if you just think about the world around us, it's, it's all based on machine labor and that is all based on low cost uh, machine food on a large scale. And that if you sort of combine recognizing, okay, the importance of machine labor with the imperfect nature of the planet, then you start to think, wow, I'm so, I really need to be preoccupied with preserving the machine labor and the machine food that fuels it. Like that's, that's the thing that I need to be afraid of losing. And that's the thing I would need to want to expand because that's what's making the world so unnaturally livable. And as soon as, you know, as soon as our machines start starving, as soon as we can't use machine labor, then we live in a more natural environment and stuff starts to revert. And then you get in the situation where, yeah, things are burning up all the time, uh, whether you want them to or not. And then you see that's just a, a tiny fraction of what a natural environment is like. But uh, that's the one we're talking about today. And certainly with blackouts, you see, oh yeah, all these machines that I was depending on, not just the lights, but you know, that's refrigerating my food and that's uh, you know, producing my clothing and just everything that's keeping us warm or keeping us cool. Just, wow, everything, what I thought of as just 
my way of life and as normal is in a sense completely artificial in the best in the best sense of the term because it's just all machine labor uh, making our life unnatural our lives unnaturally comfortable so that's my thought uh, about the discussion with Mike. So thanks again to Michael Schellenberger for coming on the show. As always, if you have any questions, comments, love mail, or hate mail, you can email me at alex at alexepstein.com. Let's see what else is going on. Energytalkingpoints.com. Definitely check that out and share that, particularly share it with politicians. I've been talking to various candidates recently, which has been cool and they've found it beneficial, but I want to talk to a lot more and get this more widely used. So energytalkingpoints.com. Uh, also, if, uh, oh, one thing that's been new is I've been doing some, the world has started to open up a bit. I've been doing more speaking. I'm doing an in-person event later this week, uh, but I'm also doing, and then I have at least one next month, and then I'm also doing more and more virtual events. So if you want uh, to do a virtual event or a live event, you can just email me at alex at alexepstein.com or you can go to industrialprogress.com slash speaking. Uh, speaking of industrialprogress.com, make sure to go there to sign up for the newsletter. And if you want to support our work at the Center for Industrial Progress, including research and development for projects like the Moral Case for Fossil Fuels 2.0 or energytalkingpoints.com, as well as our different kinds of promotional efforts, you can go to industrialprogress.com slash accelerate. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, make sure to check out Michael Schellenberger's articles on Forbes.com. So you just search for his name, and then you can also learn more about his efforts at environmental progress. I think it's environmentalprogress.com or .org. So you can try both of those or just uh, Google it. All right, that is it for this week. Uh, next week, I will be back, hopefully with another great guest. Until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour, the antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.